0: Well, I've asked this question before as an introduction. If we had to boil down, just kind of crystallize the main objective of being a Christian, what would it be? What would we say? And I don't think we could do any better than Jesus, of course, in his summary of what he said to the Pharisees who were testing him and asking him that exact same question. He said, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest is this, to love your neighbor. To love others as much as you love yourselves. Jesus says, you do this, this is a summary of my law. How do we accomplish this objective of loving God and and loving others? Well, we strive to obey his law. The moral law. The Ten Commandments. The first four commandments we said tell us how to love God. And the last six tell us how to love others. And so great. Love God. What is love? I feel like I just gave birth to a thousand songs from the 80s right there. (laughs) What is love? Specifically, what does it mean to love God? And as we jump into commandment one, we get a crash course in what loving God actually means. And so hopefully you're in Exodus chapter 20. Last week we started with our introduction We looked at at what Moses recorded for us in Exodus 20. And if we just read those two verses again, they're very important. Exodus 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Ten commandments again, a summary of God's moral law. We said last week that God's moral law is still in effect and still binding on us as followers of Jesus today. But in a special way, not for salvation For sanctification. No one can be saved by obeying the law. Because nobody can obey these ten commandments perfectly. We either break them in deed or we break them in thought. We break them in spirit. So we cannot be saved by obeying the law. But still God's law is good and it is from God and it's for our good. It is our mirror. It shows us God's holiness but then it also shows us our sinfulness, does it not? It's our muzzle. It restrains us from sinful behavior. It protects us then from the damaging consequences of sin. And it is our map. It literally shows us the way to how to live a life that is pleasing to God. We also noticed that God gave the law to Israel when? When did he say, I'm the Lord who has brought you out of the land of Egypt? He's already saved them. He's already delivered them, proving that the law was never meant to save in the first place because he saved them first and then he gave them the law. Much like ourselves, we are free through faith in Jesus Christ and only faith in Jesus Christ from slavery to sin. And he delivered us from that slavery to sin. And now the law is how we grow and how we live and how we're sanctified. And as we dive into the first commandment this week, we learn a lot about the character of God because we also said last week that these laws are a reflection of God's character. They're not just arbitrary rules that he has written down or carved into stone. They are direct reflections of his character. So we learn about God in the law, specifically who God is. We've got to know the God of the Bible, church. We've got to know the God of the Bible accurately. And the law is one of the best places that we learn about God. And so, church, again, here are the words of the first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. The first three commandments start with the, f- the familiar formula, you shall not. If you're ro- rolling King Jimmy this morning, King James puts it like this, thou shalt not, right? Thou shalt have no other gods. And that, v- that thou is actually very important. And it's something that we lose in English because thou is first person singular. This is written to individuals, Right? And we have the you. So we don't know if he's talking to you, everybody, or you, us. And the answer is actually both. But in the Hebrew, it's first person singular. Right? You, Second person singular. You should have no other gods before me. And so again, we see that this law is for us, individuals. But also, of course, it's the law given to the nation of Israel. I'll try and structure each week in a similar way, hopefully to get our arms around this. And we, we, we see this command. Again, these couple commands coming up are going to be negative. A lot of them are negative, right? You see it on your bulletin front, and you shall not do this, shall not do that. And that's maybe what people think of church and God's law. It's a bunch of shall nots, but it's telling us how to live church. Maybe parents can relate to this in this command with present and future forests. It's like that bed better be made, or maybe in the negative, those socks better not be on the floor when I get in there. Right? That idea of it it should be that way now and it should be that way for all the future. Right? It's continuing. That's what Moses, that's what the Lord is saying through Moses. And so, if we look at a structure here of, of maybe how we can get our arms around this, two kind of big big categories. First, forbidding and commanding, meaning the explanation, what are we forbidden from in this commandment? And the flip side of that, what are we commanded to do in this commandment? So forbidding, what what we are forbidden from doing, and then therefore what we're commanded to do. And then maybe a second big bucket, obeying and violating. This is the application of it. Like, how do we do this? How do we obey it? And then likewise, the flip side of that, how do we violate this commandment? And I've structured your outline there, hopefully. It's, uh, it's a little bit of a challenge, and I'm sure some people are scratching their heads, like, the bald guy's really going to preach for uh, 40 minutes on eight words? Yes, I'm really going to preach for eight minutes on 40 words. So I've tried, <laughs> four words, or eight words. I'm trying, not 80 minutes. I'm trying to <laughs> structure this. <laughs> in such a way. But it is a little bit of a challenge, because usually we go through big chunks of scripture, and we explain that, we illustrate it, and we apply it. Now we've got eight words, right? So, you know, we're, we're we're trying to get our arms around this, right? But because of those eight words, they call us to something very foundational. What, or maybe more accurately, who is the object of our worship? That's the big question. Who or what is the object of our, we, our, our worship? So deep breath as we jump in. First little bucket, what is forbidden in this commandment and what is commanded by it? So the command is the negative command. You shall not do this. And it says, what is the this? Have any other gods before me? And there's a bunch of questions that come out of that. First, what does it mean to have any other gods? Are there any gods? And third, what does before me mean? What is he talking about? To have in this sense... Means to adopt or to own or to cherish to claim as your own, and we can summarize that with one word: worship. What is this commandment forbidding well it's forbidding worshipping other gods any other gods i 'm going to use little g for gods and air quotes little g gods other than the one true God. you should declare God is your God and you should worship. Him. And so worship is a churchy word, so let's define terms. There's a few Hebrew words used for worship. Mostly they have the idea of bowing down in reverence, in submission to someone of high authority. It demonstrates, again, submissions, uh, submission. D.A. Carson defines worship like this. Worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God, describing all honor and worth to their creator god precisely because he is worthy delightfully so it's kind of like the idea of okay there's two big columns in the world there's the created things the stuff and then there's the creator right we're all in this column if you haven't figured that out and by nature all of the created things worship the creator that's just that's just how it works Worship is the acknowledgement of who God is as our creator, as our king, and submitting to him as he actually is. The God, the one and only God. There are no other gods. And that leads, of course, to the other consideration. Are there other gods? Because if Moses says, you shall shall have no other gods before me, does that mean there are other gods? Short answer, no. There are no other gods. Longer answer, no. But, We can make other gods. We can manufacture other gods. There is only one true God, Jehovah, Yahweh, God of the Bible. Three in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are no other gods. So any other God, little g air quotes, that we would worship, we made him ourselves. It's an idol. We have made this little God ourselves. Some biblical backup as you might not be surprised to see that the Bible clearly claims there are no other gods other than God. Isaiah 55 or 45, 5 says, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no other. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. As God is the one true God, he's a jealous God and he won't tolerate worship being given to any other false god. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I give my glory to no other. You should not be worshiping any other gods because I'm the only God worthy of worship. Right? We were singing that song, O Great God, and it says, you are worthy of my praise or you are worthy with every thought and deed. And I thought instantly how many times I fail right, and sin in thought and deed. But the thought came to my mind, that doesn't mean he's not worthy. He's still worthy of it even though I fail at it. That doesn't detract from his worthiness to this. And so God's law reveals God's character. And what do we learn about God? Well, he alone is God, and there is no other, and he will not tolerate anyone worshiping any other fake gods. This is what's forbidden in the first commandment, worshiping anything else other than the one true God. Let's be clear, there are no other gods. they are false gods. But what does this before me mean? Literally in the Hebrew, it's before my face. It means to worship false gods right in front of him, where he can see them. Like when we speed right past a cop, like I did this week on Route 94, and there was a cop sitting in Green Valley, and I was like, "Ying Luckily, it was raining. So thank you very much, Vernon Police. You gave me some grace on that one, right? Like a child doing something That we just told them not to do 12 seconds ago, and they do it right in front of us. Parents, you just have that moment where it's just like, is this really happening? Didn't we just talk about this 12 seconds ago? That's what it means to worship something else instead of God before him. But good as they are, cops and parents, right? We're not all seeing. God is all seeing. So God's law reveals God's character. So if we do something before him, what is that telling us? God sees everything. God is omniscient and omnipresent, meaning that God knows all things and God sees all things. We cannot give the worship that is due to God to anything else in this world that we might make up and think that God won't see it. He's going to see it because he knows all things And he sees all things. David talks about this in Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8. He he declares his love and his his wonder in God's omniscience and his omnipresence. He says, where shall I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God is everywhere at all times in his fullness and he sees everything at all times. And so he'll know the second that we worship any other false god. That's what it means to do that before him. Okay, so what about the the opposite of the command? If we're forbidden from worshiping false gods, then what are we commanded to do? Should be pretty easy to figure out. We are commanded to worship only the one true God. With everything that we have and everything that we are. The first point, we are commanded to worship only the one true God with everything we have and everything that we are. Does it say in the command to worship, thou shalt worship me? No, but it says thou shalt not worship other gods. So the flip side of that is still in effect. We're going to see this as we march through the other commandments. It's not just what it's telling us to do or not to do. The flip side, naturally, we are obligated to do as well. So if we're told, don't worship any other false gods, guess what we're also commanded to do? Worship the one true God. That's what we're called to do. Very simple to say, isn't it? Not very easy to do. And this is where we quickly remember the fullness of redemptive history. We can only obey this commandment for our good because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have to bring him in quickly into this. To say it another way, we cannot obey this commandment without first being justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Christ is the only one who satisfied the just wrath of God for sin by his active obedience in his life and his passive obedience on his sacrificial death on the cross. Jesus told us this famously in John 14, 6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can't obey this commandment except through Jesus Christ. Paul talks about it in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. He says it another way. For there is one God. One mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. All the Bible tells one story, right? We're here in Exodus, it says there's one God. We jump to the New Testament, Jesus says there's one God, and I'm the only way to get to that God. Paul says the same thing in First Timothy, there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, and it is Jesus Christ. We cannot obey this commandment without faith in Jesus Christ. If you're around for our Problems uh, with Christianity Midweek series, I walk through common objections to the faith, right? And one of them was the problem of exclusivity. Like, you Christians are so exclusive, you're really saying there's only one way to God? Yes. Well, we're not. This is, right? We're just repeating what this says. The world hates the exclusivity of Christianity. But guys, truth by nature is exclusive. One plus one is two, It's not negative 4 or 119. Like, the speed limit on Route 94 at that particular point is 35 miles an hour. (laughs) Not 52. Not that I was going 52, possibly. That is not a statement that you can use against me. (laughs) Truth by nature is exclusive. But church, look at the grace of God in giving us Jesus. Look at his grace. Apart from that, any attempt to obey this law is what? Filthy rags. We don't have anything to bring to this equation except our sin. But yet he gives us Jesus. We're only adding sin to sin by trying to please or placate a holy God. Look at me, God. I'm not worshiping. Look, I'm where I went to church today. I'm singing songs and like I threw a dollar in the, the giving box. And Aren't you happy with me? Well, no. Not if you don't know my son because I just told you he's the only way that you could come to me. We have to please God through Jesus Christ. We can't obey this command apart from faith in Jesus, but praise the one true God that he's given us his son. He's given us the means to please him. All right, so what is, what is, the, <clears throat> what is the application here then? How do we actually obey this command as Christians, and how do we violate it? First, how do we obey this command? Well, we Definitely already covered that one, right? We worship the one and true God with everything we have and everything we are. I'll say it this way for the second point and then we'll unpack it. Worshipping God means having Him as the highest priority of our lives. What does it look like to obey this command? Give worship to God alone, and worshiping God means having Him as the highest priority. In our lives. And I chose the word having very intentionally because if we are to have no other gods, it must mean that we actively have or keep God as our highest priority. My friend, Scottish Presbyterian old dead guy James Durham, said it this way This commandment requires all these in the highest and most perfect degree. Not only requires them in ourselves, watch this, but obliges us to further them in others, according to our places and callings. It also requires the diligent use of all means that may help and further us in these such things as reading, meditation, study, etc. Oh my, how this suddenly starts to get so much larger in application, doesn't it? And then in comes that sweet and terrible conviction. Of how we fail in this. Still sounds a lot like Jesus' summary of the first table, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what this is turning into. But Durham adds that we have a responsibility to help others to do the same. To use anything and everything to help us and help others pursue this to the highest and most perfect degree. Tonight at our member meeting, 5 p.m. tonight, shameless plug, bring a dish to share, bring brownies, we will be, we'll be approving our revised membership covenant. And we've structured our revised membership covenant first for clarity, but second to frame it around our biggest calling, which is to do this. And we do that by growing in holiness. We do this by looking more like Jesus Christ. So how do we do that as members? We broke it up into two buckets, right? The common means of grace, the the means of grace in actually our own selves, our personal private means of grace, which is what we evangelical, non-denominational people resonate with immediately. Oh, cool. That means like putting on worship music and having our Devo and putting it on Instagram, hanging out with God. Here we go, right? All that stuff, the personal stuff, praying, maybe fasting, Right Service, but I can make fun because we're all in the same boat. right? But it also is the public means of grace. What do we mean by the public means of grace? This, right here. Coming to church, hearing the word of God preached, right? serving with others, giving to the church, becoming members of the church, belonging to a care group, belonging to a Bible study belonging to some sort of discipleship relationship where we can know others and be known. So we have the the private means of grace and the public means of grace. And of course, privately above and beyond maybe anything, identifying and killing sin in our own hearts as soon as it pops up. So how do we obey the first commandment? The question is, are we doing what Mr. Durham suggests that we do? Are we pursuing the private and public means of grace to the highest and most perfect degree. And, and are we furthering that in others? I think of the Apostle Paul in one of his letters says, you know, you glorify God because of me. It's like, can, can people say that about us? With our example, and Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, can people say that about us? That, that, that how we live and what we are about helps other people obey this first commandment? Can we actually say that with our lives? Are we privately reading, studying our Bibles to the best of our ability? How much of a priority is personal study? How about prayer? How about dads? Are we leading family devotions? Are we killing sin? Are we letting, or are we letting sin rather take up residence in our hearts? Or do we uproot it when we find it? How about our commitment to the public means of grace? Is is church attendance a priority, or is it just something that we fit in between kids' sports and something else going on in our crazy schedules? Do we come to church ready to hear the word of God? Not because of me, but because of this, because this is the word of God. Do we come ready? Are we prepared? Are we well-rested for the Lord's Day? Are we attentive, looking for the pure spiritual food of the word? Do we sing these songs rich? Theological. you guys catch all those words flying by in that new song? Like, that's a meal. That's like a steak. It's like a theological steak. I love it. Are we, are we singing these songs loudly? You don't have to sing well. Are we singing them loudly? And, and do we understand them? Are we engaged in prayer together? At a prayer meeting. Are we involved, again, in smaller groups How do we obey this first commandment? Yeah, okay, fine. We don't worship other gods, but are we getting after worshiping the one true God? What does that look like? Worshiping God means having him as the highest priority in our lives. It's the positive side. That's how we obey it. Okay, so let's get depressed. How do we violate it, right? In two ways we violate this command, unbelief and idolatry. Unbelief also known as atheism, right? The outright refusal to worship the one true God, which Paul says in Romans 1 you have no excuse to know that I exist. All you have to do is walk outside and you see the beauty and the organization and the power of creation. You should know that there's a creator and a designer that put all this together. Nobody can stand before God one day and say, huh, wow, you really do exist. I didn't think about that. No. He says, we are without excuse. God exists. Therefore, God has a standard, right? This is not just Christians that are under this law, church. This is every human being made in God's image, put on the face of the earth. And so if you disobey this by stiff-arming God and say, you do not exist, you have broken God's law. And when you stand before him one day, you will be held to an account for breaking God's law, for refusing. Refusing to admit. So unbelief is, of course, one of the big ways we violate this commandment. But also with atheism light, which is agnosticism or maybe the more modern baptized version today, deconstructionism, progressive Christianity. We, we, we'll, we'll throw God a bone. We believe that he's up there, but, but I'm going to believe him in the way that I want to believe him. Like not, not all this crazy stuff in here. I'll believe what I want about God, and then I'll go through and, and cross out the stuff that I don't like about God. Like, I don't like that exclusivity stuff. Really? It's just one way? That's, that's not going to work for me. Okay. What else? What else bothers me in the Bible that I... You're breaking this commitment. Because God says, you should worship me and me alone. If we worship an alternate God, we make the God of our, our own image. Not the God of the Bible. Or as sometimes it said, the God of our own understanding. The God of our own creation. Our society is awash in this. It's called Twitter, if you ever wanted to go on there. Paul, in Romans 3, quoting Psalm 36, says there's no fear of God before their eyes. If you ever feel like that, you look in the society, they're just like, nobody cares. Nobody cares that God's there and he has a law. Because we break it every single day in our society. When we violate it, it's therefore sin, and each and every time that we act, think, or speak in such a way, it reveals that God is not the highest priority in our life. That's where, this, that's where this really, the rubber meets the road really, really quickly with this. Because every single time, church, that we choose sin over having God as the highest priority in our life, we break this commandment. We see flashes of this in our sinful choices. My spouse or my child or my boss or this driver in front of me just said, did something that ticked me off. So green light, guess what? Feel my wrath. I've just chosen myself and my sin over worshiping God as the highest priority in my life. Sin is exactly that. Choosing ourselves over God. It's demoting God and promoting us. And we break this commandment. And we do this most often, and this is the heart of this commandment, that biblical word, idolatry. Our friend, again, James Durham, calls this the chief scope of this commandment. It's idolatry. Since there are no other gods, anytime we worship something above the one true God, guess what we just made? We just made an idol. An empty idol that cannot save, that cannot do anything. Calvin called our hearts idol factories, right? Isn't that great? Isn't that so encouraging, right? You ever play whack-a-mole, or, you know, like down the shore or something on the boardwalk or you keep hitting those moles with those giant little mallets that I can't seem to ever grip, right, right? We kill one sin, guess what? Our heart makes another one. Kill one idol, guess what? Another one pops up. Kill one more, another one pops up. Our hearts are idle factories. We covered it this last week in Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful and sick. Who can understand it? Our heart's going to continue to make more idols so we got to have both hands with those rubber mallets ready to go. Right? Our hearts create idols. Idols come in all shapes and sizes. They're from, they're called, of course, actually false gods, but in, in America they usually come in shiny, well-marketed packages. We make idols of ourselves. We make idols of our careers. We make idols of our businesses. We make idols of our families, our homes, our appetites, our statuses, our bank accounts, our comfort, our pleasure. J.I. Packer, in his nice little book that we've actually been going through for our family devotion time, uh, he calls it Keeping the Ten Commandments. He says this, There are three, or there are still, rather, the great God's. Sex, shekels, and stomach, an unholy trinity constituting one God, which is self, and another enslaving trio, pleasure, possessions, and position. Everyone on the face of the earth has something they call holy. Everyone on the face of the earth has something like, this is mine, this is the most important thing in my life, touch it, threaten it, and you will feel my wrath. This is mine. This is the most important thing in my life. Luther wrote, whatever the heart claims and relies upon, that is properly their God. That's how you tell an idol. So, how do we know something is an idol in our lives? Well, glad you asked. Maybe you weren't asked. If, glad you asked that, right? But first, jump back to our point. What in our life has a higher priority than God? It hurts, right? Think about that. What in our lives has a higher priority than God? You see how studying the law of God brings new meaning to our sinfulness? The mirror hurts when we think about it. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is where we need help in community in identifying our idols. Because we don't think they're idols. We love our idols. We feed our idols. We keep them private, maybe from other people. That's why... Church, this is really what happens. That's why we don't want to know others. That's why we don't want people to know us. Because if they know us, they might find my idols. And I don't want them to find my idols. That's what church membership and living in community is. That's the beauty of marriage, one of the many beauties of marriage. We can be honest with each other. We can, we can point out these things. That's the hard work of parenting where we have to help our kids identify the idols that take root in their tiny, sinful, cute little hearts. But how else can we tell if we have idols? Two diagnostic questions to see. Will you sin in order to get it or will you sin if you don't get it or if it is threatened? You see that? You can tell an idol, will I sin in order to get it or will I sin in order maybe to keep it? to protect it, to defend it if it's threatened. Like, I really want that truck, so I'm going to put myself in debt, $80,000, and have a $900 a month car payment or more, just because I want to. I'd say that's a pretty sinful decision. right? It's going to have negative effects on you, your, your family, your finances. And now that I have my truck, don't touch it, don't even look at it, you might scratch it with some of your thoughts. <laughs> Nobody can ride in it except me. It is only my truck. You definitely can't eat in it or have any, anyone else in it. Or how about this? I've sacrificed my family to get where I am in my career. Don't you dare threaten it with layoffs or a loss of influence or a loss of political power at this company. Do you know how hard I work to get where I am? This career is my life. I wanted a family so bad, it was the most important thing in my life. Now my kids are everything to me. Don't you dare threaten them. Don't you dare talk bad about them. Don't you dare think they're anything less than perfect. Or how about this one? I'm so tired of being alone, I just want a relationship. So I settled, I made a sinful choice. Yes, he's a jerk. But yes, I gave in and yeah, we're sexually active because I don't want, he he can't leave me. I've got to protect this compromising. Food is a comfort to me, so I eat a lot. Substances help me cope, so I vape, I drink, I smoke, I take pills. You get the idea. It goes on and on and on. Whatever we're doing in the place of God. Idolatry is rampant in the human heart even after conversion. So church, it's not if we have idols, it's where are they? They're lurking in the dark corners of every single human heart. And it's our job to root them out, to obey this commandment. We've got to find them, not feed them. Do you remember what Israel did when Moses was up on Sinai for, you know, over a month getting the law? Remember what was going on down below? They got got a little antsy. They're just like, ah, Moses, he's probably never coming back. You know what we should do? We should make a golden calf. Great, Great idea. They make a golden calf, right? Moses comes down from the mountain. Moses was not happy about this at all. In addition to smashing those first two tablets or whatever they were, right? To bits. This is so good. I got to read it. This is one of this is why I love scripture so much, one of the many reasons. Do you know what he did after that? Exodus 32:20. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. Yes! That's how much God hates idolatry. Church, it's time to take our idols, ground them up into fine little powder, and drink them. Get rid of them. That's how we obey this commandment. How are we violating this commandment through idolatry? We've got to mortify sin, and really what it comes down to is loving God more than we love our idols. Because that's where all this crystallizes. That's where all this comes down to. It's love. It's worship. It's a worship decision. We love our stuff. We love our idols. We love whatever they bring us more than we think that what God can bring us, which is a lie, because God can satisfy any. because God's the one who created our hearts. Because love love for God is what has to drive all this. Love is where all this comes down to. Love is the only motivation for obedience here. And Jesus, again, summed up the first four commandments. How? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the goal of obedience is love. Obedience is how we show love to God. Literally, God says, this is how you love me. Have no other gods before me. That's what he says, literally. It's one of the main goals of the Christian life, right? Love God. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Love is the goal of obedience. So back to my question from the intro, what does it mean to love God? Here's the big idea. Loving God means worshiping him exclusively and primarily. Loving God means worshiping him exclusively and primarily. What is forbidden in this first commandment? Worshiping anything else other than the one true God. What are we commanded to do in this commandment? Well, worship the one true God with everything that we have and everything that we are. What does that actually look like? Worshiping God means having him as the highest priority of our life. Each and every time we don't do that, church, we break this commandment. We sin. Each and every time we choose sin, we choose idolatry. We are choosing ourselves over God. And guess what? We just made whatever that is the false God that we are forbidden from worshiping. And if we're honest, this happens a lot. This comes in with discouragement, of course. Then comes the natural consequences of our sinful decisions, right? Right? There comes a feeling of being distant from God. And so what do we do? Try harder. We're Americans. Get back on that performance treadmill and do it again. Might I suggest a massive change of focus and not doing that? We do have to obey God, but that's not the focus. Instead of thinking this as a performance-based obedience church, think of it as love-driven devotion. The goal is loving God. And if you love God, obedience will naturally follow. Because love and devotion are worship words. Loving God means worshiping him how? Exclusively he's the only God and primarily the highest priority in our lives. Are we doing this, as Mr. Durham said, to do this as to the highest and most perfect degree? Not that we have to be perfect, but are we trying Are we striving after this? Are we dedicating ourselves to this task as our life mission? We are called to love God with everything that we have, and he literally tells us how to do that. Not only that, our gracious God gives us the means to do that. We cannot do this apart from me. He's given us Christ. He's given us the Holy Spirit. We have everything we need to obey God. We are not going to do that perfectly, but that's where the grace of God comes in. But church, look at what God has done for us. Look at our Savior. Look at the spirit that he's given us. Look at the word. Look at the church. Look at all of these gifts that he's given us so that we can love him, worship him exclusively and primarily. We have everything we need through Jesus to live a life pleasing to God. And so let us strive by God's grace and through his spirit to do that. Let's pray. Father, this is an impossible calling to have no other gods before you, to have nothing else in our lives that is of such priority as you. Lord, the, the world sparkles and shines and we have all measure of things to distract us, to sedate us, to comfort us, to lure us away with pleasure or comfort or identity, and yet all of those things are found only primarily and exclusively in you. Lord, it seems trite to say, but thank you for Jesus. For apart from Jesus, there is no justification. There is no salvation. Certainly not through obedience to the law because we, in our own sinful selves, fail at this every day, but you give us what we need to obey you, Lord. Help us enable us inspire us Lord because sin also has the effect of of causing us to not even want to do this it's much easier to live for ourselves it's much easier to to have our idol collection and continue to live for them but father by your spirit by your grace put your law in our hearts as you promised to do and cause us to obey your statutes so that we might live a life pleasing to you. May we do that, Father, for your glory, and we pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.